When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 121 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brienne. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at Interview Valet, and his name is Steve Chaparro. Steve is an organizational culture expert and communicator who speaks worldwide about how companies can transform their workplace culture through intentional co-creation and communication. He is founder and principal at Culture Design Studio, an organizational design agency, and the podcast host of The Culture Design Show. Now, as you can tell by that uh, bio there, that uh, this is going to be a very culture-focused discussion. Uh, we get into a lot of pieces that I think are really going to ring true with you all. So I think you're going to really enjoy this show with Steve. Uh, so I'm not going to get into too much more because we dive real deep into this podcast. So I'm going to get out of the way, let the stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Steve Chaparro. Steve, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Earl. I really appreciate it. been looking forward to our conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. No, I'm excited by this. I've, I've listened to a lot of your stuff, kind of getting ready for this. And I love the message. I love what you bring to the table. I love your focus on culture. But uh, before we get into those things, I want to start you off where I start everybody. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, definitely, you know, the military references definitely come in uh, a bit. Um, but but I think that the most the, the most poignant thing that I think of is, you know, the saying that uh, it's lonely at the top. Um, you know, the buck stops here in terms of that type of uh, sort of onus or burden that is, in, in fact, on, on the shoulders of leadership. And and I think. Um, I think it's very interesting because I think bringing in the way the military is run with, in some cases, some might call it a command and control type of of, of leadership style and, and how that works very well in the military terms. And, and I think there's a lot of things that can be learned and transferred into other forms or other arenas of leadership. But I also think that it, it um, that it, there there is some adaptability that folks can have when they bring into what I call a little bit more of a responsive or adaptive or agile form of leadership, and I think uh, many times leaders think that they have to bear that burden alone of being the smartest in the organization, making those decisions by themselves, um, and I think that is a tremendous burden that isn't necessarily fair uh, to that leader, nor is it fair to the organization. And most of all, it's not fair to the end stakeholders that that organization is serving. Uh, I, I tend to think of, uh, you know, coming from an architecture or design thinking background, you know, I think of what does it look like to be co-creative and really spread the inputs into decisions and even the distilling of 
what the possibilities might be. Uh, so I've definitely encountered some conversations where uh, I think we sometimes as leaders think we have to be alone, think we have to be separate, think that we have to carry it alone. And I don't know that that's necessarily, it is true in some cases, but it doesn't have to be 100% that way. Yeah, no, I love that answer. That is a fantastic answer because you covered a lot of ground there and you and you said a lot of truth. Uh, you know, and I think that's the the sad part about that piece you were talking about where the, the leader feels uh, like they have to take all this burden on their own. And, and I like the fact that you put it that way because I think that's true, right? The leader feels that way, but a lot of times the, the followers, they, they want to contribute. They want to pitch in. They want to, to help you out as the leader, right? Yeah, and I think, again, sometimes uh, there's different reasons why leaders take it upon themselves. Um, sometimes they, they, it's self-induced. I think sometimes, uh, they, their success has been based on their soul. Um, you know, them taking on that, uh, you know, it's that whole thing of, if you want to do it right, do it yourself, right? Because a lot of these leaders that are in either in very high leadership roles, they're in those roles because of their demonstrated expertise or capacity. And so this kind of leads them to believe that they are the best person to do the job. And uh, I talk a lot about uh, this VUCA world that we live in. VUCA, for those that are familiar with it, it's really an acronym. Actually, I think it actually came up in the military world, as as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. And it stands for volatile. Things are volatile. Things are uncertain. Things are complex. And things are ambiguous. So much so that the best practices that you may have adopted in the past that brought you success in the past may no longer work moving forward. And so there is there, there is no way that a single leader can be so adept enough, no matter how successful that they've been, to be able to have a full awareness of the current context, let alone the future context. And so being able to really surround yourself with good people that you trust that will give you insights and 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 you know co-create what this this will look like i think that's that's really important and i think that does is demonstrated even in these war rooms if we want to go back to that military term where it's it's about getting information from different areas of expertise on the ground and with that information making the best possible decision yeah no i love it and and my listeners should most of them should be familiar with that term VUCA. Back in episode 90, I had a gentleman named Ira Wolf, and we went kind of in-depth uh, on that. So, But I agree with you, right? I mean, everything you just said there is 100% spot on, especially that information flow. And, and I like where you're going with this because, you know, I hate the way Hollywood depicts military leadership, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it, typically it's the drill sergeant. It's just yelling yeah. and screaming and it's do what I say, uh, you know, and, and don't don't give me any feedback whatsoever. But it works like what you're talking about. We our, our good leaders expect some feedback coming back, you know, because most of them uh, most of them are not necessarily, once you reach a certain port, uh, a certain point in the promotion process, they're not necessarily experts in the right. field that they're leading in. Right. They, they are, you know, let's say as a general, right? They're, they're a general officer. They have a general understanding of 
just about everything, but they don't have necessarily an expertise in any one thing. And I think that's a lot of what you're saying here is knowing your people well enough to know who to go to for what you need when you need it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I came face to face with that reality 10 years or so into my career where I was given an opportunity to serve in, in a profit and a loss manager role in this large real estate company that I was, uh, that I was working for. And this was during the time, literally, I took that post, if you will, right at the apex of the market, which meant that when they looked at the, uh, the profit and loss charts and they saw that uh, everything, the bottom fell out on 11105, they made the correlation. Oh, my gosh, that's the date Steve took his, his post. <laughs> it's all your <laughs> fault, Steve. But, but what I learned in that is that I had this wide range of oversight responsibility in that I oversaw sales. I managed literally 13 sales agents without ever having been an agent myself. And so, uh, and in other areas, construction, uh, land development, marketing, uh, land uh, acquisition, all these different areas that I didn't have the expertise. And I was a lot younger than some of these folks. And so I made it very clear from the beginning. And I said, I'm in this post, not because I'm more of an expert than you are. The reason why I'm in this role is because I know how to lead people and I know how to surround myself with good people. And I take their advice and their expertise um, to heart. And based on the information that I get, then I can make a decision or we can make a decision together about which is the right way to go. And so you're right. At a certain point in my career, I stopped being a specialist and started being more of a generalist. And I think leaders sometimes, you know, kind of like how, um, forget his, his, his first name, but Gerber, the one who wrote E-Myth Revisited, he talks about, do you want to be the technician or do you want to be the business builder? Do you want to work in your business or do you want to work on it? At some point, when you get to a certain point of leadership, you really need to work on the business and let the people that surround you work in the business, in the weeds, if you will. Yeah, again, a ton of truth there. And I think maybe you've ran into it in your uh, experiences working with organizations. I know I have. That seems to be the one spot that gets a lot of organizations in trouble is they they promote the opposite way, right? They promote mm -hmm. the person who is the specialist, who really, really knows the job in and out, but has maybe poor leadership interpersonal skills. Whereas if they promote somebody like you who knows how to lead people, they're going to end up a lot better off in the long run. Yeah. And I, I you know, I come from, I come from that uh, professional services world where, you know, um, I started and ended my employee career as, uh, in the architecture field. And so that subject matter expertise. And so whether it was architecture, being a financial planner or being in real estate business, uh, uh, real estate business, um, I worked most of my career being that subject matter expert. Um, but I, I soon realized that it was really necessary for me to really take on. And, and, and I, I had to learn, you know, like some of those things that you're saying, as you kind of go through your career, you start to learn where is your strength? Is it as a generalist or is it as a specialist? In fact, I found in my case, this weird aversion to be to ever be pigeonholed, 
or to be niched. And, and what I've come to realize is I, I feared being a specialist because then that's the only thing I would ever do and it would limit my ability to possibly move forward. And I also think going back to the professional services like the design world, a lot of the founders of these types of groups are, are in fact creative geniuses. And maybe the early success of their firms were due in large part, if not in sole part, to their individual or their sole uh, genius. But at a certain point, either in the life cycle of the company or in the career life cycle of the leader, they soon realize that there's a shelf life to that genius and that they can no longer survive on that sole genius, but they really need to harness uh, activate and uh, and kind of just deliver on what I call the collective genius of their entire team. And that includes the specialists uh, within their ranks. Mm, I like that too. And so you mentioned your journey there a little bit. So I, I've got to ask, how does somebody go from being <laughs> into architecture and design and real estate into you know helping organizations with their culture and leadership development? If I had a nickel for every time I've been asked that question, because it is an odd journey, isn't it, Errol? It, it, it's not what <laughs> most people think of, right? But I, right. I'm sure I'm sure it's a great story. So it's it's I I call it you know my I call my career the the grand experiment <laughs> because it's been a journey of self discovery. Uh, you know I I think I chose the field of architecture um, in ninth grade when I was asked to write a paper on a potential career. So I, for some reason, I don't know what it was, but I chose architecture. And so I did my research. I wrote a paper on it. I was really struck by it. So by my 10th grade year, I did more research on schools and what it was required to get into a school. And I said, you know what, this is it. So I went to school. I went to college uh, for architecture, a five-year program. And um, I was one of those very few that actually entered the field of architecture coming out of school because it's a it's it's a very it prepares you for different fields. Uh, so I found a great firm to go work for in in the region that I lived and started off as a designer and then as a project manager. So after about five and a half years, though, I I became restless again. I think part of that initial aversion to being niche, I felt that if I actually got licensed, this is the only thing I would ever do. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to parlay that training in that initial year, those initial years of experience into a different realm. And that realm was our uh, real estate development. And so uh, I was at this national firm uh, for about eight, almost eight years and wanted to learn uh, the area that most related to architecture, which was forward planning. And then I wanted to take a different pivot to really learn the business side of things. And that was as a profit and loss manager. And that was my business school, honestly. My business school was working at a real estate company as a profit and loss manager in the downturn. Well, in 2010, uh, our region had gone from a thousand people to 60 because of the layoffs. And I chose to, you know, take a different path to reading the writing on the wall. And uh, since there were no jobs in real estate development or architecture, I decided to reinvent myself uh, as a financial planner. And so financial planning, I, I drew a lot of principles and mindsets from the field of architecture in terms of if a client has 
a financial dream of theirs, um, I would perform these analysis and say, okay, if you continue on your current financial trajectory, this is where you'll be. And, but if you if that's different than where you want to be, then let's figure out a blueprint to make that happen. Um, so I, I was there, then came back into real estate, and then back into architecture, full circle. Uh, and while I was at the architecture firm, uh, the, the focus there was that we wanted to help organizations take their cultural narrative and embody that in their physical uh, environment. And so we took a lot of time in really understanding their culture and who they were and how that physical environment could actually um, promote or embody that that character. You know, I go to Winston Churchill who said, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. And so I started to realize that we affect our environment, but then the environment affects us. What about the culture? Um, because I started to realize that a lot of these companies that we were working with did not have a hand, a handle on what their culture was. So I decided in that moment, even after a conversation with my friend, a friend who said, you know, he asked me a series of questions, Steve, what do you desire most for others? I said, transformation. And then he asked, have you found that for yourself? And, and I was, wow, like <clears throat> the insight. The insight that I get by answering those two questions is that which I desire most for others is also that which I desire most for myself. And that was transformation. So I decided that I wanted to help leaders and organizations transform their cultures or even for leaders, say, transform their frustrations into foundations for change. And that's when I made the pivot to now, rather than designing buildings, to help redesign organizations and their cultures so that they could maximize their impact in the world. And that is a great story. And I got to be honest, as you're telling it, it, it really spurred one question for me. Have you ever read the book of five rings by Miyamoto Musashi? No, I haven't. Okay. I, I, I have, I'm writing it down. Well, yeah. So it's, it's very interesting because some of my longtime listeners are probably already figuring out where I'm going. But back in episode 15, I talked about one of his, the, the things he talks about in the book of five rings is this thing he calls the way of the foreman carpenter. And through this whole thing, he's talking about what you literally 1643 was when the book was written. He literally was talking about what you're talking about here right now. He says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course. You know, the foreman carpenter knows how to use all of the materials available to them. Mm -hmm. They don't have any scrap wood. They know which woods are best to be used for the support beams, which woods are best to be used for the mantles. Uh, you know, when he goes through this whole thing and like if it's a if it's a knotty piece of wood, you know, you can use it uh, internally and, and hide it with some type of covering. And some of the wood is meant to be used to put on the fire to fuel for heat and cook the food. But a foreman carpenter knows their people, knows their materials well enough to put every piece to work effectively as it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting to me when I, you know, going back to, to Masashi and, and the book of five rings is what he says in that, that, uh, that passage there basically is what you came to realize, you know, 400 years later, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's an amazing uh, that's an amazing story to hear because you know if 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 it can if it can span four hundred years almost there's got to be some truth to it right 
Right. It's a it's a it's a universal principle, right? It's yep. a universal uh, statement or insight into the human condition. I don't think that we've changed all that much, you know, the the human condition over the last centuries, if not the last two, four thousand, however many years we've been around. Uh, I think we all are all on the same path of self-discovery. And I think for me, that was a very important discovery is that the reason why I'm so passionate about these things that I try to do in service of organizations and leaders is because deep down inside, that is also what I'm hoping for myself. And I think that's true for many entrepreneurs specifically or visionary leaders, that they're seeking for something in the world and many times they don't find it. And when they don't find it, they tend to create it themselves. And that's where a lot of these businesses and entrepreneurships or entrepreneurs end up uh, creating new things because they're taking note of the world around them. They're, they're looking at what are some of those desired gains? What are some of those pains that we want to alleviate? And if there's not an adequate enough solution out there, uh, and that's kind of even servant leadership, you know, with Greenleaf, he talks about that uh, a servant leader chooses to lead only because they believe that they need to take action. But all of that is in service of, of, of love for mankind. And, and so they're choosing to act because they're, they're, they know that they need to meet a need. But then, you know, going deep, even deeper, it's a need that they themselves have. Yeah. No, I, I, again, 100%. So I got to ask, as you go through this now, you know, with everything we've talked about here and kind of looking back in, in uh, retrospect, you know, those skills of being able to kind of, you know, identify materials, put things together, find the interconnectivity and how things should connect that you need uh, to be a good architect and, and designer. Uh, do, you, do you think that those are really that foundation is really what makes you so good at what you do today? Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I say that uh, um, architecture has has uh, taught me so much about life. The life lessons that I learned, you know, way back in architecture school and to approach everything with the mindset of an architect um, and, and to know that, you know, even the idea that there's there's the foundation of a building, there's the structure of a building. And then there's the material or the finishes of the building. Um, you know, that kind of hierarchy of you can't build a structure until you have the foundation and you can't put on the wood or any of the other materials until you have, you know, whether you call it the beams or, 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 or walls or, or, or columns. And so even that idea of just this systematic approach of solving some of these problems, and that's where design thinking has been a valuable way of, uh, uh, of approaching things as well. I mean, it's in architecture, we've used this design thinking approach for all of our lives, but we've just never called it that. Design thinking came about uh, as a way to kind of um, democratize this systematic approach to solving problems for the masses. And, and so, um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you about life lessons I learned even by just learning how to manually draft that are so mind-blowing for me is still applicable yeah no 100 percent. I'm, I'm you know i was asking because i wasn't sure but i was hoping you'd answer that way because you know it's people love to ask that question like oh if you could go back 20 years and, and change anything would you and i'm always the person absolutely not 
you right. know, because I agree. Yeah, because yeah, if I, you hadn't been an architect, would you be here right now? No, and and I, and I would say that you know I think uh, sometimes in the moment, like people, as as you kind of shared, like looking back over the trajectory of my career and just kind of like scratch your head, like Steve, I don't understand how you went from that to that to that, and then back to this and then back to that. Like, what was your grand grand plan? And I, and I don't say I, I would say that there probably wasn't this grand plan. And and sometimes in the immediate um, moments after making some of these big moves that sometimes don't make sense in the moment, you can look back in hindsight and see that for me there was a thread. There is a thread to everything that I do, and it kind of you know each step, even if it had temporary or or short term hardship. It definitely taught me a lot, and and I I wouldn't I I truly believe Earl that I would not be here today if I had or at least doing what I'm doing right now if I hadn't gone to architecture school. In fact, who knows if I hadn't gotten that homework assignment in ninth grade that allowed me to choose architects as as a as a potential career, I probably wouldn't be here either. Who knows? I actually attribute it going way back to even when I was five years old. That I went to Great America in in Ohio, came back with my Bugs Bunny drawing kit, and for the very first time drew a building from across the street. Who knows? I may not be here if it hadn't been for that moment either. Um, and it's just amazing all of these decisions that we make in our lives and how they lead to where we're at. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I. I I, I love it. I love it because, you know, I think people take that for granted. Like a lot of people will sit back and they want to say, you know, hey, this terrible thing happened to me. Yes, I would go back 20 years and I would change that. But they never stopped to think, well, yes, that thing was terrible. What kind of growth came out of that terrible thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I say that we can learn from every bad situation. In fact, we can even learn from a fool. <laughs> and sometimes we're the fool, right? Yeah, sometimes we're the fool. And I think the lessons that we learn from a fool, whether whether it's someone else or us, is we learn what not to do. Yeah. And there's a great deal of wisdom even in that. Yep. It's the old uh the old Edison quote, right? Is uh, they talk about the thousand different ways to build a light bulb and his response was uh you know, I didn't fail a thousand times. I figured out a thousand ways how not to build a light bulb. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So one thing that I'm very interested in here, and, uh, you know, again, my listeners know I, I, I work with some services that help provide me guests. And one of them are my friends, uh, uh, Tom and Karen Schwab. Tom's been a guest on the show before. Um, and they send me these one sheets to, to kind of prep me for the guest. And on these one sheets, there's usually, you know, some kind of like prompts for interview topics. And, and I love the title here. I'm very interested uh, for you to share this with the listeners and, and myself here. The dilemma of the frustrated visionary or excuse yeah. me. The, yeah. The dilemma of the frustrated visionary, how vision driven leaders fuel a movement without causing burnout. So let's talk about that for a second, because that's a very interesting concept. Yeah, well, it comes from, you know, frankly, my own journey and then recognizing uh, that other people are on that same journey. And I think uh, when you think of visionaries, you know, I think visionaries are many times applauded by culture and history because of the outcomes of their work, but not necessarily because of the journey. We, we love, you know, to see 
how the iPhone has completely transformed uh, the electronics world by Steve Jobs, but we don't necessarily know about the heartache, the pain, or the discomfort, the anger, the frustration that he experienced uh, to get to that point. I mean, talk about loss. I mean, fired from a company that you founded. I mean, what what greater loss can a businessman ever experience? So I, I think of there is a genius in some cases, as we've talked about before, there is a genius to these visionaries because they can see the future so clearly. They can smell it. They can taste it. They can wrap their arms around it. It is so clear to them. And they see the benefits of that vision that either one, they will help society avoid some calamity or two, they will allow the future to become so much better, brighter, and more beautiful. Um, so when it's very clear to them, uh, and then they share the message, whether it's a warning or an invitation, and they meet resistance, many times when their passion, when their vision meets resistance, and it continuously meets resistance, that passion will sometimes turn to frustration. Frustration because you can see it so clearly and, and you're trying to take hold of that seven-year vision and bring it forward seven years to today, as an example, and people just are rejecting it. And, and we can tend to, uh, as visionaries, believe that everyone else is the problem, that they're narrow-minded, that they're short-sighted, that they are just stuck on the status quo, that they you know, are resistant, that they're rebellious, and all of these different things. Uh, and, and what happens is uh, is that I believe uh, what I've seen for me and I've seen in other visionaries is that if we're left uh, to experience these negative emotions in an unhealthy way, then the shadow side of our personalities emerge. Um, say, for instance, uh, there was a time that I experienced a lot of frustration. And so I decided to reach out to people with a list of questions to give me some frank and candid feedback. And one of the bits of feedback was, Steve, your passion can absolutely fire people up, but it can also burn people out. So that burning people out is the downside of what I do well, <laughs> right? I can burn too hot. Uh, or if say, uh, Steve, you're so determined to see this vision come to pass, and when people either are processing it or resisting it, you bully them to the point of being condescending that they just give in to you. And I think that's the downside of being a visionary is that you're so adamant, so passionate about it, is that you, we can tend to be so task oriented that we can walk over people. And so that's the dilemma. The dilemma is embracing the brightness of your genius but also recognizing the dark side of, of that genius as well. And rather than rejecting or uh, sweeping under the carpet those things, what can we do to actually, with a great degree of self-awareness or developing self-awareness, what can you do to identify those blind spots? And then with mindsets, methodologies, tools, and activities, what can you do to transform those frustrations into not just foundations for change, but ultimately movements of change. Well, no, I love that. And I, and I think I, 
I can safely speak uh, for for most of my audience here when I can say a large group of people, as you were sharing the story, were sitting there saying, yep, been there, done that. Because uh, I know I have. The first time I got into any type of kind of formal leadership development, I did exactly what you did. I was like, come on, why can't you people like get on board? This is serious stuff. Like yeah. leadership, it has such a big impact. Let's get let's get real about this. Right. And I'm sitting here not taking into account that these, you know, these people have like three or four kids, they got spouses mm-hmm. they've, and you know, I, I failed miserably and, and was very counterproductive to what I was trying to do. And so I can identify with that a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think sometimes even in organizations, when you're about to bring some sort of change initiative, those that are lead, leading the change in initiative have probably been processing this big change for the last three to three, six, 12, however many months. And so they're further along on that change journey. If you think of a, of a change journey as, you know, almost like this graphic of the ups and downs of what it looks like to journey through something. Well, if they're at the tail end of that and they're saying, okay, I'm convinced this is what we're going to do. We've been thinking about this. I'm up for it. I'm willing to take the pain. And then you introduce it to someone who has heard this about this change for the very first time. And we want them to immediately embrace it when our our current um, sort of location along that change journey has taken us six to 12 months to get there. Like, who are we to think that they're just going to move all the way through when we've had the benefit of our time ourselves? Again, 100 percent. You you define my journey to a T right there because. I just been uh, came out of the Marine Corps, uh, served an enlistment, and you know Marine Corps from day one. They're talking leadership, 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 like day one boot camp, leadership, leadership. And like you said, I'd been thinking about this. You know, I'd been in the organization for about four or five years after getting out, so I'd been on ten years down the road essentially. And yeah, I'm like, why can't you people catch up? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and no one's ever going to be as passionate as we are. That's one thing that leader. That's a hard lesson about leadership, right? Yeah. Is no one is ever going to be passionate about this vision um, uh, enough. So it's almost in some cases, how do you like feed out the line a little bit? Like if you're throwing out line manually with your hand or even a fishing pole, you kind of let out a little bit at a time because people need to be able to digest and process what we're talking about. And sometimes one thing that I'm very guilty of is I, I like to think big. And guess what? I'd like to start big as well. And when I do that, I will ultimately fail. And so the idea is to think big, but start small, especially if you are trying to enlist. And I use that word maybe even more appropriately here in the context of even military uh, leadership is because when you enlist, you volunteer. You are not drafted. You volunteer. So it is by your own volition that you say, you know what, I like this, I like this cause, I'm going to join this cause, and I'm going to be all about this cause. And so when you can bring sort of that enlistment mindset in your into your organization, then it becomes a movement because movements require enlistments. Movements do not operate well by, by drafting, by mandating compliance to a cause. Yep, that is 100%. No, I love that bit there. So uh, as I mentioned in the pre-roll bio, uh, you have your own podcast, The Culture Design Show. So uh, I want to extend a courtesy to a fellow podcaster to kind of pub their show a little bit here. What, what is your show about and why should my listeners give it a listen? 
Yeah. So if you're passionate about uh, culture and leadership and you're interested in learning how the principles of design may offer some some methodologies and frameworks to use, I think it would be a really great um, podcast to look at. You know, Culture Design Show is kind of like a, 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 an offshoot of my own consulting group, which is called the Culture Design Studio. And that is truly where we just explore topics of how design and the systematic approach to bringing about change can be useful for leaders who are trying to accomplish some sort of vision. And vision has to be intentional. Leadership has to be intentional. And some folks might say, I'm not a designer. How would this apply to me? Well, then I would respond to the question, how often do you designate something? Well, the root word of designate is design. And that's just about being intentional. It's about using a process to solve problems, a framework. And it's about allowing the process to help you become informed as to what the right solutions are. So we interview a lot of, you know, thought leaders, um, CEOs at companies who are champions for culture and are either wrestling with or have wrestled with the tension of what it means to be a, a, a good leader, a, a leader of healthy culture in, in the current environment. Love it. I love it. And, um, you're on, I'm assuming, iTunes, Google yep, Play, all, all those. Platforms. Yep, all the all the, the platforms out there. We were on there, so yeah, it's been a it's been a, a real a lot of fun, uh, you know, having these conversations because I get to learn. You know, it's just the whole thing of you know, like I was saying before, you know, if uh, the reason why teachers teach is because they want to learn. Yep. The reason why I podcast an interview is because probably for the same reason you do it, Earl, is because you also want to learn from your guests as well. Uh, I, yes. I mean, I, the your episode 120 and I've probably learned at least 120 different things uh, <laughs> doing this and it has been so fantastic. So, um, so I got one more question here for you before we kind of uh, work to, to wrap things up here. Uh, and, and I think this is a very timely discussion we're having here because I'm not sure, um, you know, for listeners reference here, we're recording this podcast uh, at the beginning of June, uh, it's June 3rd to be exact. And uh, this morning there was an article uh, on Bloomberg. I don't know if you saw this or not, but it's titled uh, employees are quitting instead of giving up working from home. <laughs> and, you know, we're coming, depending on who you talk to, we're coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic and uh, organizations are really trying to redesign and re-engineer how they're going to work from where they were forced to go into for uh, to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic to post-COVID life. And seeing an article like that, you know, it tells me that that our our employees, our staffs, they have an idea of what this new design should look like. How can leaders get there and and how can they use this design process to really kind of come up with a good solution that keeps their business moving forward and doesn't cause their people to quit? Yeah, I, I think ultimately what uh, the first thing that they need to look at is is take a real, almost like a blank sheet approach to evaluate, evaluating what are the desired outcomes. It's just like an architecture. In architecture, we draw the plans, we create the so-called blueprints, and we show the contractors 
our design intent. Now, we are actually not legally supposed to tell the contractor um, the ways and means in which they construct the building. That's up to them. That's based on their contractor license. So all we can do is to describe to them and, and try to maintain the design intent. And that's where we, we come in. And so the idea of even looking at what is the desired outcome for, from each of our employees and then just like innovate, what are the different ways that we can actually do that? So I think that the physical office, one of the things that I think it's really important for organizations to do is to completely reevaluate the value proposition of the physical office. Because we are still carrying with us in many cases saying, well, if we want to have collaboration, if we want to have, if we want to keep an eye on our people, if we want to make sure that they're productive, we need them in the office. I think that's holding on to old mindsets and old approaches to the way uh, things are being done. In fact, you know, with the younger younger generations now becoming the more dominating voice in 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 uh, in the workplace, they have different expectations. And I think the big thing is that COVID has led us to experience the actual benefits of working from home and still accomplishing the desired outcomes, they're now saying, I can have the same outcome without all the baggage of commuting, with all the baggage of having to be on the road, without having to be away from my kids or all these other things. Uh, they, they've just seen we can still accomplish those outcomes in a completely different way that is more of a win-win for me as an employee. And so I think if if companies aren't looking at that and, and even changing the way they measure uh, those desired outcomes or productivity, then I think they're going to start losing people. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And I'm still trying to come to grips with this rush to, like you say, go back to quote normal because, and I'm sure you probably had some of these conversations with leaders in, in one breath, they're talking about all the money that they've saved by not having to, to pay, you know, light bills because the lights are on all during the day or the air conditioner is running in the office building the whole time and all this good stuff. They've saved money in office supplies. You know, their organizations have realized real cost saving benefits to work from home, yet they still want to, to like you said, kind of go against the flow because workers are telling us, hey, you know, we enjoyed this. Sure, some people are missing the face-to-face uh, -face yeah. interaction, yeah. and we got to take that into account, obviously. Uh, but the vast majority of folks said, hey, I like this. Let's keep this going. And I think the downside, too, to maybe not embracing this is we live in an era right now where it's so easy for somebody to say, well, you know what? I, I don't like the way this culture is. I'm going to spend a few hundred dollars, pop up a website and do my own thing. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think um, I mean, already the Gallup, you know, if those that follow the culture and, and are familiar with the Gallup uh, um, employee engagement uh, reports, you know, as of about a year or two ago, I forgot. I haven't seen the latest iteration, but it was about two thirds, only two thirds of employees. Rather, I mean, let me step back. Two thirds of employees are actually disengaged, and of of those two thirds, twenty percent are actually actively disengaged, meaning that they're somewhat toxic. 
And so the idea that um, we want to bring uh, some 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 clarity to what people want and what people what people believe that they uh, is the environment that they can do their best work. I think sometimes leaders, I mean, there could be multiple reasons why people uh, leaders want to fight this, and I think some of it is they have to change the way they lead. I think that's a big that's a big part of it. Now they probably can't quantify that from a biz. They probably can't make a business case for that. So the business case comes from, well, let's take, for example, Apple. I don't know if Apple was part of the article, but Apple just sent out a memo saying that they wanted employees to come back for three days a week starting in September. Uh, and they had the option to, you know, to work from home for the next one or two days in the week. And a lot of people are saying no. In fact, a lot of those big tech companies, I think 67% or so, are saying they prefer to work from home. So, um, and, and, but, but let's say for Apple as an example, well, they just opened a couple of years ago, their, you know, the, the, the mothership in, in Apple Valley that they've spent billions of dollars on. I think in some cases they're feeling that they're pregnant with costs that they've already spent and need to make some value out of that. You know, there's, there could be so many different reasons. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And again, that's part of the process, right? Is taking all of those things into account and finding the best solution. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. well, Steve, brother, we've been talking here for about 45 minutes or so, and this has been a great conversation. I really want to uh, say thank you for being here and, and, and having this conversation with me. Thank you, Earl. This has been very, I, I appreciate all the questions and, and, and even kind of the research into some of the things that we've talked about before. I think it made the, the conversation so uh, so fluid. So thank you for this opportunity. No, not a problem. Well, before we do close out, is there anything we didn't get a chance to cover that you'd like to touch on? I think the only thing that I would love to be able to offer as a sort of a resource to your audience, you know, you mentioned that video, the dilemma of a frustrated visionary. And I actually have uh, a free audio course that I would love to just share with your audience. It's just five days of daily emails that are sent out to you. And that includes an audio lesson along with some activities to help you just apply some of those lessons. And so if people are interested in that, they can go to stevechaparro.co slash frustrated. Outstanding. And I'll have that link uh, in the show notes. Uh, and on that note, um, you know, so folks are bought in now, right? They, they want to design better cultures. They want to really uh, take a holistic reexamination of how to, uh, how to operate post-COVID. And they want to take advantage of this reset button. And they've heard this show and they're like, Steve Chaparro is, is our guy. How do they reach out to you and, and find out more about what you can do? Yeah, I think the first place would be to to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, so Steve Chaparro, last name is one P and two R's. And so LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me. And please let me know that you heard about me on the Burden of Command podcast. And then the second place is my website, stevechaparro.co. Outstanding. Outstanding. And again, I'll put those links in the link uh, to the LinkedIn, say that three times fast, uh, <laughs> in the show notes for everybody. So you can just click on it and, and get right there and uh, connect with Steve. Well, sir, again, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, 
again, I, I love what you're doing. Just keep up the work and, and keep going down this path and we'll see where this journey takes you next, right? Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Roy. I look forward to staying in touch. Yes, sir. And listeners, thank you for sticking with us for uh, this past 45 minutes or so and, and uh, enjoying, I can say that very confidently, enjoying the conversation that Steve and I had. Uh, make sure you take advantage of that offering that he had for the, the frustrated course there because I'm sure many of you are are maybe experiencing that or have at least experienced that and maybe are in danger of doing so again. So make sure you take advantage of that. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Keep getting out there and rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so all the great uh, content from a guest like Steve can reach more people and change more lives. That's a great responsibility that you all have, and you take it very serious, and I really appreciate that. With that, thank you all very much, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Trick out.